Jesus, I thank you for your word, and I thank you for the encouragement that it is to us, the way that it lifts up our spirit, the way that it turns our eyes to you, the way that it draws us deeper into worship and relationship with you. And God, I pray this morning, um, even as we look at a difficult topic like this, I, I pray that you would open up our hearts, open up our minds. God, we, we ask that you would be moving in this room this morning, um, that you would meet us where we are, and that you would draw us deeper into your heart. And um, we just look to you this morning. We, we ask that you would take this time of worship and be pleased by it. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Um, all right, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, cruising through our series called Dynamic Dysfunction. I actually want to start with the last couple of verses in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. So let me read verses 9 through 13, and you can follow along with me. The Apostle Paul writes, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now, I am writing to you, or, uh, but now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Okay, maybe you can see why... Uh, this is kind of an intense topic to be teaching on. But we can see from verse 9 that this is not the first correspondence that Paul has had with the church in Corinth. My mic is not working. Sorry, is that better? Okay. I was wondering why I was talking so loud. Okay. Um, we, we, we see from verse 9, this is not the first correspondence that Paul's had with the church in Corinth. Um, he refer, refers to a previous letter that he wrote them in which he told them to uh, not associate with anyone who is sexually immoral. Okay? And unfortunately, the church in Corinth misunderstood Paul here. Okay? They, they, they misunderstood him to, to uh, mean that he was saying they shouldn't associate with people outside of the church who are living lives of sexual sin. And if we take a little historical journey into ancient Corinth... Um, we're going to begin to understand the problem this would have been for the church in Corinth. Let me give you a little insight here, okay? For them to obey Paul in this regard would have been incredibly difficult. So this is why he clarifies his first letter. Corinth was the city that contained the temple to the Greek goddess Aphrodite. If you know anything about uh, Greek mythology, Aphrodite was the goddess of love, and her temple was staffed with a thousand temple prostitutes. Okay? Corinth was a very sexually immoral, sexually free, sexually promiscuous part of the Roman Empire. And so for the church to not have any dealings with sexually immoral people, or even immoral people in general, it would have meant that the, the Christians in Corinth would have needed to basically barricade themselves in their homes. I mean, they could not have associated with the typical citizen of the city of Corinth and, and been able to obey Paul, free from, from associating with sexually immoral people. You basically couldn't live in Corinth 
and not associate with people who were immoral. Okay, You would have had to remove yourself completely. Which is why Paul clarifies his point here for the church in Corinth. And it's a crucial uh, idea for us as a missional church to understand. Okay? A missional church like ours has a heart for reaching the lost community around us. So let me sum this up for us, and, and you can kind of take some notes here, okay? I'm going to try and fix that. Um, within the church, we absolutely do not tolerate sexual immorality. We do not tolerate immorality in any way, shape, or form. Okay? It's not acceptable for those of us who are a part of the Christian community. Outside of the church, honestly, we don't really care what kind of immorality people engage in. Uh, we're not concerned how people choose to live their life. We love those people. We want them to understand that living in sin has dire consequences for their lives. We look for opportunities to encourage those people to live moral lives, to live good, pure, righteous lives. But outside of the church, we never condemn non-Christians for the ways in which they choose to live their lives. Okay? We're not called to judge them. We're called to love them. And non-Christians don't have the same worldview that we do. Okay, their sense of morality doesn't come from all, where we get our sense of morality. It doesn't come from Jesus. It doesn't come from the Bible. So it doesn't make any sense to hold them to our standards. Okay, we pray for them, we love them, and we leave the judgment up to God because it's none of our business to judge them. It's his. Okay? However, within the church, the brother or sister who is a fellow servant of Jesus we do indeed pronounce judgment upon them if the way that they live their lives is outside of the biblical definition of morality and holiness. Okay? Paul goes so far as to say we should throw them out of the church, which is actually very sound advice. It's harsh, but it's sound. Okay? And I want you to keep in mind that this advice comes only after he has already communicated them to the standards of holiness within the church. Remember, this is the second letter that he's written them. So he's already clarified. He's already told them what morality is. And now he's saying, if somebody is living outside of those standards of morality, it's time to purge them from the church. Okay? People who, are, who, who follow Jesus are called to live lives of righteousness. There's no way around it. That's what it means to be a Christ follower. And the great and terrible irony here is that from Paul's writing, we can infer that the church in Corinth did indeed have a standard of sexual immorality. They were just at, uh, holding the wrong crowd to that standard. They were measuring the wrong community by that standard. Let me try and unpack that a little bit more for you. Read verses 1 through 2. He says, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that's not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. See, what, what was going on here in Corinth is that there was a man in the church who was sleeping with his stepmother. Okay, we know it's stepmother because... Paul says, father's wife, not mother, okay? But, but this was an act that was so immoral that even the sexually promiscuous pagans in Corinth thought this was crossing the line. 
Do you see how strange that is? The, the people who went to temple prostitutes in an act of unholy worship thought that the Corinthian church were sexual deviants because of the, uh, the behavior that Paul mentions here. Okay? It's scandalous. The, the church is turning a blind eye to its own sexual sin while telling pagans outside of the church, hey, we can't associate with you because Paul told us to stay away from dirty sinners like you. Okay? And, and it's a classic example of Christian hypocrisy, which is a word we hear thrown around at Christians pretty frequently, isn't it? And how many times have you heard Don Christian say that? I don't, I don't go to church because Christians are hypocrites. You know, they, they judge non-Christians, but then they live just like non-Christians. And you see what's going on here. Do you see the dysfunction that can creep into the church when we lose our focus and we take our eyes off of Jesus and we put it on something else? That's why, if you were here several weeks ago, we talked about Paul starts out his letter to the church in Corinth by mentioning Jesus nine times in as many verses. Just reminding them, hey, get your eyes off of whatever it's on and put it back on Jesus. Because the church in Corinth was tolerating and even condoning sin within the church, that was acceptable, while casting judgment on ignorant people outside of the church who had no understanding of their code of morality. It's totally backwards. And the practical application for us here as a church is pretty stunning. You know, I'm, I'm a young guy, uh, and while I may be a young guy, I've seen so many churches be destroyed by this kind of behavior. You know, from the inside out, through hypocrisy similar to this. And there's an important footnote for us to understand here. This is the second time Paul has warned the church in Corinth to steer clear of immorality. And again, we don't know exactly what he said in the first letter because it's lost. We don't have it. It's not a part of our Bible. But we can bet it was something along the lines of don't associate with sexually immoral people in general. Okay? Don't even associate with immoral people. And, and this is a problem for us. Because if we're honest human beings, then we're willing to admit that we are immoral. Okay? The, the church is filled with immoral people. If Paul's command is don't associate with immoral people, then we're kind of in trouble, right? Like, how do we disassociate ourselves? Every person who goes to any church is an immoral person. If you ever find yourself in a church where they don't believe that, get out of there as quickly as you can. Okay? I mean, big shocker here. I, as your pastor, am an immoral human being. It's in my nature. And what Paul clarifies and tells us here is that the church, this is the distinction, the church should not tolerate people who persist in their immorality. And by people, I mean specifically Christians. Those who are born again, saved by the name of Jesus through his blood, his death, and his resurrection. The church should not tolerate Christians who persist in their immorality. Okay? The casual Christian, which is a term I like to use a lot because I think in America there are a lot of casual Christians. The casual Christian might actually persist in their immorality. But the true Jesus follower puts immorality behind them. They leave it. 
Okay? In my personal life, even though I'm an immoral person, I strive to put to death my sinful nature, like Scripture tells us. You know, I pray earnestly that in moments of temptation, God will give me victory over that temptation. I don't want to live a life of sexual sin or sin in general. I seek to fix my mind on godly things as a Christian. I repent when I sin as a Christian. I hate evil. And I work with all of my might to overcome sin in my life wherever it might rear its ugly head. Anywhere. Okay? And, and more than that, I surround myself with people who can hold me accountable. People who know me, who can challenge me and encourage me, who can call me out and support me as I seek to be a moral Christ follower. And that's the difference. It's not that I am a completely moral person because I'm a Christian. Okay, that's not the case. It's, it's that I don't persist in my sin. I fight with every breath and every fiber of my being. I try to love Jesus. I try to be better through the power of the Holy Spirit at work in me. That's the calling of the Christian. And it's very clear from 1 Corinthians chapter 5 that the problem in the church in Corinth was that sin was quite acceptable within the church, but unacceptable outside of the church. Which is totally backwards, isn't it? Shouldn't it be the other way around? Sin should be intolerable inside the church while understandable outside of the church. And this right here, I think, is one of the fastest ways to become a dysfunctional church that's completely ineffective. Okay? Judging the world for the sin that it lives in while living in sin and loving it ourselves. It's totally ironic. Now, the application that I was kind of getting at a few minutes ago is this. We need to be a church where those who are sincerely struggling with sin can come and find support in their struggle. Where they can find grace and forgiveness. And we always try to extend grace and forgiveness when dealing with humans. Okay? We always try to start there. Beyond that, even, I would say we have to be a church where we help people encounter Jesus in a way that transforms them from chronic sinners into holy Jesus followers. Now, at the same time that we are a church that strives to do that, we as a church have to be willing to draw the line and for the well-being of our community discourage certain behavior within our church as unacceptable. Let me give you an example. A while ago, there was an individual who was coming to our church and this person had a problem with some of my leadership decisions, which... Okay, that's fine. That, that's okay. You can do that in the church. But rather than confront me about it or confront our leadership team about it, this person began slandering and gossiping other, uh, slandering other people in our church and gossiping to other people in our church, spewing poisonous words to innocent bystanders, people who had no idea what was going on, about even people who weren't involved in the situation. They weren't even involved in the decision-making process. Okay, that was my decision-making. And, and essentially what they were doing was destroying the church from within, creating little factions inside of, of, of our church. And when it, when it was brought to my attention, uh, our leadership team followed the guidelines that Jesus sets forth in Matthew 18 to deal with these types of disputes within the church, these kinds of issues, okay? We sat down with the person. We told them we knew about the behavior. We told them that we had spoken with eyewitnesses about it. And we wanted to get to the bottom of it so it wasn't a problem anymore. 
And they were slow to admit their fault. They were unrepentant. Basically, uh, even after a conversation, they persisted in their unchristlike behavior. Okay? And a second confrontation after that yielded, again, no results. And at that point, it became very clear to our leadership team, this person has no place in our church any longer. Okay? Because we tried to deal with it in the way that the Bible says it should be dealt with, and there was no response. And what's interesting is that sin likes darkness. When you shine the flashlight on sin any place in the church, it scrambles like, like cockroaches in the dark, right? And what happened was as soon as we brought this issue to the light, this person came to us only like 24 hours later and said, I'm going to leave Maricopa Springs, okay? Because they realized that we were not going to tolerate slander and gossip in our church. If there's a problem with our leadership, we want to deal with it, but we are not going to accept slander and gossip. We are not going to allow our church to be destroyed from the inside out. Okay? The, the point of this story is we're not going to fail to hold the highest standard of holiness for those who follow Jesus. And we're going to do whatever it takes to help people be like him. That's the goal of our church. And for Christians who don't want to be holy like Jesus, they don't have to continue to be a part of our community. Okay, we're not going to hold them here. They're welcome to leave because we're not going to back down from holding Jesus as the standard that we strive for. Okay? We don't approve of religious insincerity and we don't tolerate it within the church. Those who claim to be Christ followers but live as if they're not. Okay? Now there may be some people sitting in the room right now who really don't like to hear me say this. You're, you're sort of uncomfortable and just to clarify, if you're a non-Christian, you're welcome here. You can live your life however you want. We're, we're, we're thrilled that you decided to give up part of your memorial weekend Sunday morning to be with us. We sincerely hope that you're going to meet Jesus here and that through him your life is going to be transformed. But we want you to know that beyond that, right now, until you encounter him, we have no rules for you to follow. You're welcome to attend our Sunday morning services, continue exploring for as long as you're curious, okay? But there may be some people in this room who are Christians and are still uncomfortable with what I've said. And I want you to know, I'm, I'm not backing down on this. I'm not sorry. I'm not compromising here. It's something I refuse to do. Paul commands the church in Corinth to purge the evil person from among their midst. Okay, the person who claims to know Jesus but is living in brazen and repentant sin. They've got to go. And, and there was a point in history where the church was faithful and actually did that. Okay, but, but these days we're too afraid to be called intolerant or bigot as a Christian or Christian fundamentalist maybe. So we tolerate sin from Christians who should be striving for holiness. And we can't do that. And, and as a leader in this church, I want you to hear me say, I would much rather be called intolerant by the world that does not understand our call to holiness in my efforts to lead our church, to, to even protect your souls as the shepherd of this flock. I would much rather hear their slander and be called intolerant, then be told by my Lord that I cultivated a community of immorality and hypocrisy. I mean, I have to stand before the throne of God one day 
and be held accountable for the way in which I led this church. And I want to be able to stand and say, you know, we had some tough conversations, Lord, but we produced people who are authentic Christ followers. And it's a no-brainer for me, that decision, because my boss is Jesus. I'm accountable to him, and I'm accountable to the elders of our church for what goes on in this church. And we're not going to tolerate immorality from those who call themselves Christians. Okay? There's one more important point to make here, and it's this. What makes you a Christian? What makes you a Christian? What does it mean to be a Christian? And honestly, these days, I don't really like that word because it's kind of confusing. A lot of people, when they hear Christian, they think of angry, judgmental, hypocritical people who still behave immorally. They just do it with a very smug and self-righteous attitude. Okay? Because what is it? Christians aren't perfect. They're just saved or something like that. You ever heard that one? <laughs> True, but you're missing the point. Okay? Or, or maybe when, when you say the word Christian, people think, um, you know, a really good person who goes to church a lot, but that's about it. Okay? The reason why I like to use the word Jesus follower or Christ follower is because it makes very clear what the end goal is. It's Jesus. It's pursuing him. It's looking like him. A Christ follower or a true Christian then is someone who's put their trust in Jesus to forgive them of all of their sins, past, present, and future. It's forgiven, it's done, it's over. You embrace the love of God. And then beyond that, as a Christian, we're, we're learning day by day to trust God for everything. And as a result of that fundamental relationship, the Christian life is radically different. It's not just like everybody else with a label stamped Christian. Okay? Old behaviors die because Jesus has given us new life. And the passion and the driving force behind the Christ follower is that in all they do, their Lord and Savior would be glorified, would be honored, would be worshipped for what he did to free them from sin, free us from sin. Okay? For the true Jesus follower, guys, it's not about going to church. It's not about appearing pious It's not about impressing other religious people. It's about worshiping Christ for all that he's done and and all that he is. Okay, we we love Jesus. Or at least if we can't say that, we're at least trying. I mean, in some moments of brokenness, maybe the best you can muster is a good effort. We'll take that. That's acceptable. Okay, enough on that. I need a few more minutes. Let me try and explain why Paul gives the command to throw the evil person out of the church. Okay, because there's a reason here. It's it's logical. It makes sense. Why does Paul think it's so important for unholy behavior to be purged from the church? Verses 6 through 8. He says, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a a little leaven or yeast leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. In order to really understand these verses, we have to go back to the Old Testament, okay? Because Paul is using language that he's borrowing from the Jewish tradition of Passover, And Passover is the feast where the Jews celebrated their deliverance from Egypt in the days of Moses. Maybe you're familiar with the story. The people of Israel were slaves in Egypt. God came to them 
and he said, through Moses, I promise that I'm going to free you from slavery. I'm going to liberate you from the toil and the abuse you've been subject to. And God did several incredible miracles in Egypt. We call them the ten plagues. Okay? And, and for all of those incredible miracles, the revelation of his power, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, would not listen. Forget it. You're not leaving Egypt. You're my slaves, and you're going to be that way. So God warned Pharaoh that if he didn't let his people go, that death would work its way through Egypt one evening, and it would kill all the firstborn children in Egypt. And God commanded his people, the Jews, to sacrifice a lamb and sprinkle the blood of the lamb around the doorpost of their homes, so that as the angel of death worked its way through Egypt, it would pass over the homes of those who had the blood on their doorposts, and their children would be spared. And they were commanded then to be prepared to leave at a moment's notice, because as soon as the angel of death softened the heart of Pharaoh, it was going to be a quick journey out of Egypt. Okay? They were going to have a very short time, and they needed to have a sense of urgency and in that need for urgency, there would be no time to make bread for the journey that would have to rise with time through the work of the yeast, right? There would be no time for the yeast to work its magic on the dough and make the bread rise like it typically did. Okay, the people of Israel would need to be prepared with bread already made so that they could book it out of Egypt at a moment's notice. And so God commanded them, sprinkle the blood of a lamb on your doorpost, have your bread baked and ready to go, bread without yeast. And every year after the Exodus, the people of Israel celebrated Passover, where they told their children the story of God's great faithfulness. And a part of this was to go throughout the house with a candle and ceremoniously remove all of the yeast from the house, wherever it could be found. And so yeast, or leaven, in this story became a symbol for sin. That which should be removed for the sake of purity. And it's a wonderful illustration of sin, isn't it? Paul says, don't you know that just a little bit of leaven leavens the whole lump? In other words, just a little bit of yeast in a batch of dough causes the whole loaf to rise and swell and become puffed up. A little secret, I brew beer at home, okay? You make this big five-gallon jug of beer, and you pour in like this teeny little packet of yeast. And somehow, magically, that little bit of yeast turns a five-gallon tub of beer into the bubbly stuff that we know of, right? It's incredible. It's just a teeny, teeny little bit. And so it is with sin, right? A little bit of pride in the church can cause the whole organization to swell and get bloated. A little bit of sexual immorality that's accepted can cause the whole thing to just rot from the inside out. A little bit of sin that finds its way into the church and isn't passionately removed can destroy the whole body. I remember as a kid, quick story, my dad resigning from a church that we went to. He'd been a part of this small group with some of the leadership in the church. And it was a couple small group. And my dad took sabbatical, went to England for six months. Came back, and when he got back, uh, there was this dispute that had taken place while he was gone between two couples in this small group. And what my dad found when he came back was a church of almost 3,000 people completely divided on either side of this dispute. On either side with two egotistical leaders within the church. 
And because my dad refused to take sides, he was forced to resign. And probably no surprise that shortly after that, the church split. And both of those splits over the, the following years basically fell apart. Okay? Because sin destroyed the church from the inside. And I think the initial argument was whether or not to like have doilies on Christmas tables at the Christmas party. You know, I mean, it was something just ridiculous and stupid. Totally irrelevant. But because pride was tolerated in that church, even, even almost idolized as a character trait that you should have in this church, the church was brought to its knees because of just a little bit of yeast. And Paul reminds us in this new age where Christ is the Passover lamb, there's no place for the leaven of sin to be present in the church. And Jesus is our sacrificial lamb. It's his blood over the doorposts of our lives that sets us free from the power of sin and evil and death. And so we celebrate God's grace in our lives through the work of Christ by removing the leaven of sin from our lives and from his body, the church. Okay? Essentially what Paul is saying is this. Since you've been forgiven through Jesus, rid yourselves of sin. Celebrate what God has done in your lives by living holy, righteous lives. And this isn't a foreign idea to us. I mean, think about all the places in our life where something bad might be a part of our life and we get rid of it. I heard an interesting story this week. Angelina Jolie, she made a decision to have a double mastectomy even though she was not diagnosed with cancer. Proactively. Understood that cancer will devour you from the inside out. And so she made a, a tough decision to cause her to live many more, li- many more years in her life. And as a church, we have a mandate to live a long, full, healthy life. It's my prayer and my hope that Maricopa Springs is ministering to people 100 years from now. And in order to do that, we have to cut out the cancer from our church if it rears its head. Okay, and fortunately for us, as far as I know, by the grace of God, we're a church right now that doesn't have a whole lot of yeast. Okay, as far as I know. If I'm wrong, please let me know. Okay, and I pray it stays that way for a long time, but we have to be proactive to look for it in our own lives and in our church, wherever it might be. Because if we can eliminate it now, we're doing the best for our community. Okay, we're, we're striving for holiness. We're striving for righteousness. So I have a couple applications for you guys. I mean, the, the first one is let's pray for our church that God delivers us from evil. Pray for that for yourself. I just heard this crazy story about a, a church that started like 14 years ago. Someone from the very beginning of that church started embezzling 14 years into it and embezzled $500,000. I mean, do you think that she was insincere that whole time? No, but something happened where she allowed evil into her life. And so we pray that God delivers us from evil. And then we fix our eyes on Jesus, who fills our hearts with love for God, for love, a love for good and holy things. And we worship him for the transformation that he brings to our lives. I mean, that's why we gather every single week, to be encouraged and worship him for that. And we pursue him on a personal level. 
I mean, I think I challenge you guys in that regard almost every single week to pursue Jesus on a personal level and also on a corporate level, which means we do that together as a church, as we sing, as we worship, as we encourage each other. And I just want to say one final thing here before I close and we turn to worship and communion. Because that's what we're going to do next is communion. And at Maricopa Springs, we take communion by intinction. So if this is the first time you've ever done this with us, we're going to start worshiping here in a couple of minutes. And you're welcome to approach the table in the back of the room. There's wine or grape juice, whatever your preference is. You tear off a hunk of that bread, you dip it in there, and you can just eat it right there on the spot. Okay? But what I want you to understand as you do this is that your action is very much like the people of Israel taking the blood of the sacrificial lamb and sprinkling it on that doorpost. Because the night that Jesus was betrayed was actually the night of the Passover feast. And all of his disciples were gathered around him, and they knew the significance of the blood of the sacrificial lamb. They had been raised under this tradition every single year. They understood the symbolism. The lamb that died and gave up its blood so that the children of Israel could be spared. And on the night that he was betrayed into the hands of those who murdered him, Jesus told his disciples that his blood would be shed for them. That in the coming days as he would go to the cross, it would be his blood spilled for them. And he explained to them that the Passover lamb of old was really just a signpost all of those decades, all of those centuries, that that pointed ultimately to his sacrifice on the cross, to the death of Jesus, the lamb of God, who would take away the sins of the world. Not because we deserved it, but because he's gracious. So that rather than death, we could have life. And he told his disciples this, Drink the wine or the grape juice if you prefer and eat the bread and reflect on the fact that the wine symbolizes his blood shed for you. And the bread symbolizes his body that was crucified for you. And the reason that you and I have access to eternal life is because of the sacrificial lamb, Jesus, who died for you, who died in your place, for your sins, so that you wouldn't have to. And what a precious idea that is. What a precious God we serve who would go to that extreme to redeem us, who gave up his riches so that we might be rich, who took on our poverty so that we might have his riches through the blood of Christ. Let me pray. Jesus, sanctify us and make us a holy church. Make us people that are holy. Lord, I I pray that you would deliver us from self-righteousness, but that we would be holy. And God, I pray that you would make our church a church that is truly missional in this idea that we understand the world is filled, filled with immoral people. And it's our goal, our mission, our great privilege to love those people and to walk with them into an understanding of who you are as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And God, I I pray for those of us in this room right now that as we approach the communion table that you would break our hearts, 
Lord, that we would confess unconfessed sin, that we would know your forgiveness, that we would know the power of the cross, the blood that was shed for us, and that we would know the power of resurrection into new life. And God, I pray that as we approach the table and we take communion, that you would draw our hearts to yours so that as we come back and worship together, our voices would be loud, our hearts would be united with yours, our spirits would be filled with your spirit. And it's in your name we pray, amen.